don't believe, I always think that all this bullshit about to provoke you a little bit more, this is superstitious logic. It's pure ideology. You know this ecological bullshit like... Uh... Hello and welcome to the end of the world. This is Anthropocene's episode 37. And today we are doing a, a Disney Plus grab bag. So as we talked about on our last episode, we watched random things that we found on the newly released Disney Plus streaming service. And we're just going to talk about them and, and see uh, where we end up. It can't be any more random than like some of the conversations we have about movies that we, you know, supposedly have ideas for. So, yeah. And it, yeah, I think we'll end up somewhere productive. <laughs> we'll end up talking about something. Well, uh, ho- hopefully it all sort of, uh, sort of culminates in a reflection on the app itself, which may be more interesting than the specifics of the films in, in some cases. Yeah. And, and we could just sort of like, cause I wanted to, to bring that up anyway. We don't have to get into it in much detail right now, but just all of these streaming services and how it, just the way we watch that we watch television has changed so much. Right. So there are all these sort of separate streaming services and it feels like it's kind of expanded out and now it's going to pull back in. So, you know, you have like the office leaving Netflix because Paramount's doing a thing and Disney's doing a thing. So it seems like instead of having like big time cable networks, we're just going to end up with like every company is going to take all of their intellectual property and yank it off of everything else and put it on their own platform. And so you'll have to subscribe to, you know, whatever services you need. I assume there's a lot of parents out there that like immediately thought, Oh, now I have to get Disney plus. And it it's like weird it's how like it's, cable. I, I just realized it's sort of turning back into normal cable. Yes. Yeah, so I'm saying like, it, it's going to end up being like cable, except it's going to be, you know, instead of internet. channels, you'll have different streaming platforms. Uh, and it already is kind of like that. Like I don't have cable. I haven't had cable in like a decade now or more. Yeah. But so, I mean, yeah, I mean, Netflix is going to end up producing Netflix originals and Amazon produces Amazon originals and Hulu produces Hulu. And then now Disney's got its thing and then Paramount will have its thing. And yeah, it's just instead of TV, it's apps. It's not TV, it's HBO <laughs> and all these other things. Yeah. Uh, so it's kind of interesting to think about that. And I just hope that. I don't know, because the thing about all the streaming services is that it gave you this kind of feeling of, of freedom that like, oh, I can cut the cord and, you know, be free, be untethered. But now it's kind of like being tethered again when you have to have like three different streaming services to cobble together anything worth watching. Yeah. Um, so, <clears throat> oh, well, I mean, we got we got the Disney Plus viewing for free, so we can't really argue too much. Yeah, I've I've got an absurd level of access to films at my house now. It's ridiculous. I have Netflix and Amazon and Hulu and Canopy and the Criterion app and now Disney. <laughs> and that's the other thing that comes along with that is that kind of anxiety of choice. Yeah, and the like, only oh, one God, I pay I for is uh, Amazon, I think. Yeah, which is like the worst one to pay for but well it's oh. just the prime you know <laughs> yeah because uh, i support the devil we all do on a daily basis did you see um bezos the the beezer he got some uh some accolades for donating like 
what was it like a hundred million dollars or something something like that um maybe yeah, i'm pretty sure that's that. like me giving somebody a 20 dollar bill oh yeah somebody calculated it and it's like 0.009 percent of his fortune or whatever but he donated it to help the homeless and everyone's like oh see everyone's you know talking shit about billionaires and he's using his money for good and then someone conscious capitalism yeah and then someone on twitter uh put up this like thing where they showed the details of it and there are all these like shitty details of like it's meant to use that much money over a period of like 10 years and it's not going to support any homeless families that are living in motels and like all this sort of shit and so it's just like not only is it really not that much money compared to how much he has but then there are all these kind of loopholes and shit that sort of make it way less effective than it could be if he just like walked up to a family and was like here's 50 grand (laughs) Yeah. Also Warren, I mean, look at like Warren Buffett and Bill Gates. Those guys have made, you know, given away billions and billions of dollars. Mm -hmm. Um, So like, yeah, I don't, uh, I don't give that guy any credit. I mean, there's no way it's, it's an absurdity that he has that much money. There's no, yeah, you know, all sort of normal morality or moral choices are, are just so, beyond this conversation yeah and you know it it, everyone has said this but it bears repeating like you don't make that much money you don't earn that much money like that's a glitch in the system (laughs) like that's not (laughs) that's not someone just like getting up earlier and working harder than you so or actually it's not a glitch in the system it's exactly how the system would like to function um yeah Anyway, uh, we get we can jump right in. So, uh, Disney Plus. I was kind of speaking of you know giant behemoths that want to rule every aspect of your life. Uh, Disney Plus is surprisingly kind of like robust catalog wise. It has all of the episodes of The Simpsons, which is kind which of is weird. weird. Yeah, I don't understand why really because it's not I a Disney that. property. Um, but that's one of the ones I watched is I watched every episode of the Simpsons for, (laughs) for one of my films this week. Nice. Um, but it has that. And then it has, you know, all the other Disney shit and a lot, all the national geographic programming, which I, I dipped into quite a bit of that. Um, Hmm. so I guess we can just sort of, do you you want to go first or do you want me to show I'll show you mine if you show me yours. All right. Well, the, the first thing I watched just because I've been seeing a lot of stuff about it. Um, and you know, we can sort of talk about different aspects of it. I watched the first episode of the Mandalorian. Oh, is that that Lars von Trier film? That's, uh, like on the stage. It's sort of, uh, Bertolt Brechtian kind of thing. Yeah. Um, this is the, the, the star Wars spinoff show, uh, with uh, Werner Herzog is in it for a brief moment, which was interesting. Um, but I, I kind of, enjoyed that it's it's like star wars but it's post collapse of the empire um and it's very like i don't know i just i appreciate that whole like power vacuum chaos no one really knows what's going to happen next kind of uh dying empire thing because that's kind of where we're living right now um (laughs) so it's kind of interesting to see it presented in that way although i will say it's not i don't know if you're not already a star wars fan maybe you don't like it as much but it is I think a a kind of interesting take and it's nice that they actually are trying to do something a little bit original, even if it is, you know, based on all this stuff that people already love, but trying to tell 
a sort of new kind of gritty story. There's a lot of like killing, <laughs> but you know, it's Star Wars killing. So it's just like laser bloop bloop. Um, so, right. uh, and you know, per usual, all of the uh, sets are like deserts or ice planets, which kind of made me think about um, the way the interplanetary travel works in Star Wars because, you know, we've watched a lot of, or at least two or three films uh, for this podcast that deal with, you know, space travel, we watch Interstellar and Ad Astra and all that stuff. And they take a very kind of, or try to take a realistic kind of view of it. And it made me think about Star Wars where that, like traveling from planet to planet is such a big part of it. But at the same time, every living thing seems to be able to breathe the air on every planet and every planet (laughs) is hospitable to life even if it is a desert or an ice planet. Um, And, you know, there's a common language that everyone in the galaxy speaks. It is sort of interesting to think about, like, all of the uh, sort of suspension of disbelief it takes to get into that. Um, But, you know, it's not a a big leap to make because it's, you know, sci-fi stuff. Um, Right. But it just kind of made me think about that. Well, that's a quintessential choice, I think, uh, or a perfect choice for... Uh, Disney Plus uh, grab bag because I feel like like Star Wars is the um, perfect you know single film or or franchise uh, embodiment of like what Disney Plus is as an app. You know, Star Wars is the thing that gets into people when they're a kid, mm-hmm. and then you sentimentalize it and it becomes this thing of nostalgia. And, uh, I remember somebody was telling, maybe it was you or I can't, I can't remember if it was you or Jensi saying her students were like staying up until midnight so that they could get the Disney plus app uh, so they could watch this star Wars show. It was like that big of a deal. Um, yeah, it's blown up all over, uh, all over online. Uh, a big part, a big, a big part of it is that there's a there's a baby Yoda that's very cute. Um, so it's not actually Yoda, but it's it's whatever species he is. Um, it's just an actor playing him. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, it's just a little CGI baby Yoda, and it's very it has giant eyes, and it's very cute. Um, and they're gonna sell a million toys of it, I'm sure. So there's oh, yeah. that. But yeah, that is kind of, you know, the big things that are the big pillars that are holding up Disney and Disney Plus by extension are like Star Wars, the Marvel stuff, the animated stuff like Frozen 2 just came out. So they're going to make a billion dollars off of that. Um, And then, you know, racism is the other pillar. (laughs) that holds them up. (laughs) Yeah, I uh, I saw I guess one of their categories is like out of the vault. Yeah. And it's mostly just uh, just the ones you've heard of. It wasn't like super um, obscure stuff or anything like that. It was just like, you know, Cinderella and the Little Mermaid and Robin Hood and that that sort of stuff. Yeah. Which I turned on. I turned on Peter Pan for a second, but I didn't watch much of it. Um, I would have been yeah, turned those, on Robin Hood. I, I really I was into I, Robin Hood. The music, the music in Robin Hood is really cool. Yeah. I remember. Um, but yeah, um, yeah, I, so I can't really speak intelligently about star Wars. I've only seen, I mean, I sort of pieced it together over the years and then maybe a year or two ago, I watched the first one. 
um do you mean sort of do you mean a new hope or phantom Menace? i mean uh the fourth one a new hope okay uh, <laughs> <laughs> i was like if you'd only seen the phantom menace that was going to be the best possible <laughs> scenario for like y- your frame of reference for star wars is just that film i remember i remember i was playing trivia so, several years ago and there, there was like a star wars themed category and my friends were like looking to me because they knew i was the movie guy right and i was like i've never seen all of star wars and they're like what the fuck and then they didn't know the subtitle of the first or the fourth uh film a new hope and i got it right and i restored their faith in me and uh we ended up winning 25 dollar gift certificate to buffalo wild wings so it hell everybody yeah. won hell yeah uh so that that is interesting that you've never really seen well you've seen that one which i guess is good to at least seen that one um i you know I've, maybe we've talked about this before but i'm kind of like i'm kind of like a glutton for punishment when it comes to these big franchises <laughs> Because I will literally, literally just like sit down and watch them just to have seen them because I want to have, <laughs> yeah. I want to have the frame of reference of like, if someone mentions it, I want to be like, yes, I've seen that. And so like, I've seen every Star Wars movie, uh, including like Rogue One and the unrelated stuff. Um, mm. I've seen most of the Marvel movies, not all of them. I think there's like maybe three or four I haven't seen. Um, you know, I have other friends that like make fun of me for that. They're like, why would you waste your time? I'm like, the, the, these are the, the pop culture properties that are like shaping this era that we live in. I think it'd be good to at least have some sort of knowledge of them. Um, and yeah. you know, there are parts yeah, of them yeah. that are enjoyable, uh, for the most part, not really, but you know, I, I can't, I could watch them for this podcast if I had like a, a sort of intellectual, kind of perspective to bring to it like oh let's watch this and see what stereotypes are being perpetrated and perpetuated let's see uh you know if we're sort of coming at it analytically but but to just sit there and to to uh be entertained by one of these you know mm-hmm. spectacles i, I i've it's like I can't anymore. Yeah. I, like it just doesn't do it for me yeah. anymore. And I don't think I don't think I could ever rewatch one of them. Uh, <laughs> but it, it, I mean, the, there are some that I haven't seen that people speak really highly of. So like Thor Ragnarok, which is the one that Taika Waititi directed, mm-hmm. which apparently is like the best Marvel movie that everyone always talks about. But I just have never got around to watching that one. Um, yeah. So Taika Waititi was actually a voice of a droid on the episode of the Mandalorian. Mm. It's pretty cool. Or at least I think it was him. He's, he's a voice of somebody. Horatio Sands was in the episode as like a fish Weird. person that gets, or gets like picked up by the bounty hunter, the Mandalorian. Um, but yeah, like I could see it's kind of like they're trying to play it off as like a, almost like a wild west thing, but it's star Wars. And the music is very interesting because they tried to make it sound like I, I can't think of a way to describe it except for like indigenous or like ethnic. So it's kind of like hmm. it's sort of Middle Eastern, but sort of like Native American. And it's got this like weird kind of like tribalish thing going on. Um, so that that was pretty interesting. So, yeah, we don't have to talk about the Mandalorian anymore. Um, 
I, 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 but I watched it. That was the first thing I did, and um, I could go back and watch more of it. I think it's it's better than the Watchmen so far, which I've also been watching on HBO. Hmm. I didn't even know that. That's like a new, a new series. Yeah. It's uh oh god. How do I even like? Is Damon Lindelof? You know, did Lost and mm. uh, the Leftovers and all that stuff. So he's kind of a dumbass. So he he some parts of it. Are, are pretty dumb. Um, but I, I'm sticking with it just cause I really am a fan of the original. And so trying to see where he goes with it, but I have no illusions about it being quote unquote good. Gotcha. So you can um, go ahead and hit me with one of your all right. watches. The, I'm going to go chronological, like, uh, chronologically with, not not in the order I watched them, but in the order they were released. Uh, so the earliest film I watched was 1990s Shipwrecked. Uh, <laughs> After with uh, Gab- Gabriel Byrne. Uh, this was uh, maybe my favorite movie when I was a kid. I had a VHS recording off of this like Sunday night ABC thing where Michael Eisner, the CEO of Disney would introduce a film, uh, you know, like a family film. And so I had this VHS copy and I was happy to see it on Disney plus. I immediately watched it. Um, maybe it's, uh, I guess it's saying you can't tell if it's 1990 or 91, uh, but it's a Norwegian film strangely enough the directors from norway nils gaup g-a-u-p um and i can't remember his name there's the cinematographer which i I bring up because the film is kind of beautifully shot especially for a children's movie the cinematographer's Uh, name is erling thurman anderson so he shot like uh uh, insomnia the Robin with, Williams uh, movie well that I, I believe that's a remake uh, from the original like Christopher Nolan remade yeah. the original which was Norwegian or Swedish or something oh, okay uh, uh, which has like a criterion release it was like a big deal and he shot uh, Prozac nation oh okay um I'm somewhat familiar with that. Anyway, so he's like a real legit cinematographer. And here he is shooting this children's, you know, Disney film. And uh, it's like Terrence Malick made a fucking children's movie in terms (laughs) of the it's like takes place on the, you know, there's a big uh, obvious, obviously a shipwreck. And so half the movie is on the water and it's they're They're on a ship in the ocean. It is all there's all it's all practical effects. There's obviously no, um, you know, there's no CGI. It's not artificial looking at all. Um, anyway, it's about this kid, uh, Hawken Hawkinson, which is the original, uh, t- the title of the novel on which it's based. Uh, and the novel was written in like the late 1800s. And 
so it's about this kid from Norway. His family's going to lose their farm, and so and their their dad is like injured, and so he volunteers to become a sailor to earn money so he can save the family farm. So he goes on this voyage. A pirate played by Gabriel Byrne, uh, John, uh, John Merrick. Merrick, yeah, the elephant man. Uh, he poses. This pirate poses as a captain. He ends up killing the real captain, and uh, they have there's the ship wrecks, and the kid ends up on an island. He's made friends with this other guy and this girl from Australia, who's a stowaway, and so they sort of band together. And then on the island, you realize that Merrick has left his tre- his uh, treasure in this cave, and the kid finds it, and then it becomes this like sort of home alone, you know, booby trap type movie. Uh, and it's just deeply satisfying. Um, <laughs> but it's it's one of those movies that when you revisit, you know, I, I loved this movie when I was like eight, nine years old, and I don't feel embarrassed watching it now. It's like, oh, okay, this is like pretty decent filmmaking. But the, the thing I found the m- most interesting about is thinking about these things I'm saying about how it's like a real – film it's shot it's you know shot by a real cinematographer not some you know somebody who's making the sweet life of zach and cody on the disney channel or whatever um and and how that doesn't really happen anymore where it's like i mean first of all this movie is set in the late 1800s which like disqualifies it from production today Uh, the kid's name is like unpronounceable you like it's really hard to understand what they're calling him and he's like got the same last name as the same as his first name hawken Hawkinson, or something like that uh, so there's all these things that i'm just like this movie would not <laughs> exist today that makes me appreciate it even more but but even even more than that it's the kind of practical look of it and the adventure sort of real life adventure of it. I was scrolling through Disney plus and I, uh, saw the, the series of films called cars, you know, cars, cars, two and three. And like, that's a pretty good contrast. I mean, those are pretty popular movies and, you know, cars is like a, a Pixar kind of, uh, you know, it's a product made entirely on computers that's that anthropomorphizes machines and asks you to care about them, you know? Um, and here's this movie in 1990. That is this live action, um, adventure really. Um, and it's just such a contrast, such a range of types of movies that you can call a, uh, you know, like a kid's film, Um, and I just, it made me think about like the Sandlot and heavyweights and kind of these, these movies that are PG Mm -hmm. intended for kids, but that, that could not be made today because (laughs) this is the phrase that just popped into my head. They're PG, but they're not PC. (laughs) 
because uh, yeah, because like heavyweights, re- because you they really require do that. something of the protagonist. Like you know, Smalls has to like not be a pansy and and try to play baseball in the Sandlot before he can get social acceptance. And uh, whatever the kid's name is in heavyweights has to like go to this camp and you know compete against these shitty jocks across the across the pond and in shipwreck this kid has to like leave the farm and like get hazed on the on the boat and become this sailor and it's just i don't want to sound like one of these guys like i was like you know glorifying my childhood movies uh, but they're there is, I think, a huge difference between those types of stories and those types of films and uh, something like Cars that is 100% computer-generated and and depicting this sort of um, weird world where you're supposed to care about machines. And, of course, that's just one of 100 examples like the new Jumanji and Ready Player One are all about these sort of alternate alternative realities did did i did i uh was this you i was talking i think this is somebody else i was talking about how the jumanji remakes are the only ones of those kinds of like cash grab remakes that really piss me off i don't think we've talked about that like i it really bugs me because the original jumanji is so fucking good and, and it's one of those you know, live action, like kids, family movies from the nineties. That is just like, just a perfect idea. Like I was so into that idea of this game coming to life and like the monkeys coming out of it and trying to shoot you with the cops, like all (laughs) all that sort of stuff. Like I just thought it was such a great, a great movie and it, you know, blew me away when I was a kid. And now it's like, now it's a video game and they get sucked into the, the mainframe or whatever the fuck it is. And it's the rock running around being strong and and one of the characters is like sexy lady with short shorts, like Laura Croft looking, you know, Tomb Raider sex pot thing. Uh, and it's yeah. just, it, I don't know. I just, I don't, I don't like it. <laughs> it makes me feel bad. You know, I, I think we may have talked about it briefly in a, in a, our conversation about Avatar. And then maybe we just like, I think that might've been from the part we cut out. <laughs> you, oh, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, maybe. Um, yeah, so that's one of the only ones of those kind of remakes that, that, that really kind of bug me. Um, otherwise I don't really care too much, but it cars is interesting just to like sidetrack for a second that, um, Pixar makes Wally and then they also make the cars franchise, which is Mm -hmm. like, for one, it's kind of telling that Wally is not a franchise, right? Uh, those kinds of movies, but cars, like you said, it's, it like most of those movies, it's designed to create characters that are anthropomorphized something, whether it's toys and toy story, whatever it may be that you can then sell as merchandise to little kids. They all want Mm -hmm. the lightning McQueen toy or whatever. But the fact that it's like making little kids fall in love with cars, which are like, yeah, should not exist (laughs) for, for a lot of reasons, but do by necessity. And because they've been so purposefully ingrained in American culture over the course of, a century or more um and it's just sort of you want to talk about like the hypocrisy or the sort of internal uh contradiction of you know pop culture 
on that level, then that's kind of a good representation of it, of those two properties existing side by side in the Pixar catalog. Yeah, it's kind of, it's disorienting. Yeah. It's like schizophrenic. Yeah, that's a good, that's a really good way of putting it. Um, and, you know, you only notice it if you're uh, old sad bastards like us <laughs> that care about that, yeah. thing, that kind of thing. If you're a kid, it's just like you could go to bed at night with your Wally and your Lightning McQueen toy and just like cuddle up to them. Yeah. Although I don't think uh, maybe little kids didn't like Wally. Maybe that was the problem. I, I don't know. I don't. Uh, I haven't talked to many little kids about it. Can you imagine like they think I, they think Wally's lame? He's like this little like beta cuck robot, and then and then they're like <laughs> Lightning Queen. He goes fast, yeah. And then they just yeah. get into that. Uh, oh, Wreck It Ralph is another one of those that's like video game based. Yeah, uh, that's that's uh, is that Pixar? Yeah, it's Pixar, right? I don't remember. I think so, um, so uh, yeah, shipwrecked. Sounds interesting. Yeah. Like, I, I'm it, surprised dude, I haven't I'm seen you, it. Watch it, Corey. Uh, Corey watched it the other night too. He said he told me. Uh, so I, I highly recommend it. It, it was sort of um, maybe that choice was informed by the fact that I'm still uh, knee deep in Moby Dick, and knee deep in Dick, knee deep in the in the Dickle, and so I just got sailing on the brain and. Um, I'm sort of seeing what Gauche was referring to, you know, when he's talking about uh, writers, uh, he's talking about Steinbeck and Melville depicting the role of natural elements in, in humans lives better than any other writers. Uh, and there's one of the main themes I think uh, of Moby Dick so far, which like I said, I'm, I'm like 600 pages in, is humility there's there are many passages of uh you know ishmael sort of waxing uh poetic about man's place and his hubris in the face of the ocean and the whale and um just a lot of different ideas but they all sort of have this this one uh, conceit that man is not the measure of things uh which is just sort of surpri- surprising um yeah not not really what I was what I was expecting but with the uh, i mean there's that's not super uh explicit in shipwrecked or anything but <laughs> it is it is nice to see a uh, uh a sort of realistic depiction and a a kind of compelling depiction of just like real life action adventure uh in a kid's film yeah and it, and that's 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 what i love it's also it's also kind of ahead of its time uh, in its uh depiction of the female character the the sort of love interest she's kind of this badass before move you know before netflix had a category for like uh, strong female lead films uh, she is uh, uh better with weapons than the, the, the protagonist is. Uh, and it's just kind of very self-reliant and you can tell the film is like trying to draw your attention to that, which was nice. And I've, again, 
I did not feel embarrassed about having loved this movie as a kid. That's good. And is this why you like in treatment so much? Maybe. Uh, but I also, I think that show stands on its own merit as well. Its own Merrick. There's a nerdy <laughs> pun. <clears throat> so I'll have to check that out. <clears throat> I kind of, um, for some reason, like when you said shipwreck, the first thing I thought of was the cabin boy. Do you know that With movie? Chris yeah. <laughs> Which is very uh, different. Yeah, very different. So um, moving right along here. The, yeah, what you got? Number two. Okay, so I'll just like the, this is not a couple of things I watched. Well, actually, I guess three of the four of them are not movies. I was kind of like trying to get a nice sampling. So the second thing that I watched uh, was episode one of The World According to Jeff Goldblum. Okay. I uh, saw that, but w- I did not w- click on it. Which is uh, about sneakers and <laughs> and sneaker culture. The, the film? Uh, no, sneakers, the, like sneaker culture and, uh, you know, be, ah. being a hype beast and all that sort of stuff. And it, it was really interesting because, one, I'm pretty sure Jeff Goldblum has just, like, lost his fucking mind. Like, I, I, maybe he's just always been like this, but he's just a genuinely wacky human being um that dresses really well um and for two it was kind of interesting because he kind of makes the concession pretty early on that like sneaker culture is incredibly stupid and it's all driven by you know demand and uh consumerism and all this sort of stuff and there's no reason that it should be this like huge industry where you can make thousands and thousands of dollars from it um, but, but that's like everything. Yeah. But he also like revels in it and shows you sort of how cool it is and like how awesome some of these shoes are. And he talks to people about, you know, these different people like this guy that goes by the, he's known as the shoe surgeon and he makes like fancy, like custom sneakers that cost like thousands of dollars. Goldblum goes to a shoe convention, like a sneaker convention in Cleveland of all places. And talks to some guy who's apparently some like big name in the the sneaker world. And uh, he buys like a whole table's worth of shoes from this dude for like $30,000 or something. And the dude's like, can I do a bank transfer? And the guy selling the shoes is like, I'd really prefer to just work in cash. And they show a lot of like clips of uh, all the dudes are wearing like uh, some sort of like Louis Vuitton like fanny pack but draped over their their torso you know like cool guys do kind of over the shoulder and they're Mm -hmm. pulling out like these huge stacks of money that they've made from selling these sneakers to these idiots who like sneakers um and, and it's kind of fascinating to see like all this stuff and it's never you know they they never bring this up but the fact that a lot of those shoes are made out of these out of like terrible materials that are labor intensive and produce a lot of pollution to to produce I was gonna say do they, they go to vietnam and, and like uh, <laughs> see where they're made yeah um yeah th- that kind of stuff they, they don't really touch on that at all instead it's it's you know the kinds of people that are really into sneakers like waiting in line to buy the newest pair and the fact that you know people will spend like he talks to like a 13 year old kid who says the most expensive pair of shoes he owns is like eighteen hundred dollars um, and it's like, I could have, if I was 13 and I had $1,800 or access to it somehow, I would have done so many other things with it. Yeah. I, uh, 
I, I don't think I could probably, when I was like 10, $1,800 might as well have been a million dollars to me. Yeah. And so, in I don't know, the, the reason I wanted to watch it is because the sneaker stuff is kind of interesting enough on its own, I guess. But the fact that Jeff Goldblum is your your guide through this world <laughs> and you're kind of like learning about it at the same time he is and he's like making his ooh, ooh, ooh he's like doing that kind of shit the whole time <laughs> and it, and it's so uh, it, it's just like Nike, I, I recommend watching Nike uh, 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 finds a way uh, ha, mm, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's, it's it literally is like there's scenes where he's just doing shit like that although there is also a scene where he He's talking about basketball shoes in particular, and he's hanging out with like former WNBA players and like people that are around basketball in different capacities. And they're in this outdoor court, and he plays basketball with them. And he's actually like not bad for a man his age, but I think part of it is that he's really tall, so he's like grabbing yeah. rebounds and stuff. But he uh, he he says they they're talking about street ball or something because one of the guys that's there was uh sick with it from and one mixtape tour if you're familiar with that mm. and uh yeah not not him but i remember that uh and, and jeff goldblum is like well i've i've, I've only ever played street ball <laughs> it's just so <laughs> i was like dude this this can't be happening uh he keeps telling people about the story about his uncle chucky who was a, a really good basketball player like played in college and it's just very weird and and kind of endearing, and and it is just interesting to see it because, like I said, um, they he sort of makes this concession that like all of this is really dumb, but we're we're gonna you know experience it and go into that world and that kind of stuff. And I'm kind of interested. Like I might watch the other episodes to see if that's kind of how he handles all of it because there's like an episode about ice cream. In an episode about like jeans or whatever, uh, but it was definitely an experience that I would recommend people have. It's just the fact that it's so. Uh, I think the 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 biggest thing was that's in the National Geographic side of it, and it's like an original, like a Disney Plus original. So I see the same kind of thing happening with National Geographic that happened with the history channel and with a and E and with TLC uh, where they're moving away from what they actually started as and moving toward like goofy shit, like the world, according to Jeff Goldblum, kind of like, you know, yeah. TLC was the it's learning like channel. Yeah. MTV too. It's like TLC was the learning channel and then it became like the honey boo boo channel or maybe that was a and E. Uh, history yeah. channel went the from history channel now it's all about aliens and shit and like pawn stars and shit like that i used to love like what it, i was a big nerd as a kid so that let me throw that out there first but i really really liked a and e and history channel because i really liked biography and i really liked uh you know history channel document documentaries um and then as i was as i grew up it shifted away from that and then first it went to where it was just like all Hitler all the time. And then it was uh, reality shows and, you know, Alaskan, the deadliest catch and Alaskan gold mining and ponds. They also have these really sort of shoddily researched religious, like, you know, the historical Jesus yeah. documentary. Yeah, which they're definitely like going for, for that crowd that would watch that. Do you, do you remember 
when uh, I think it was either right before or right after Obama was elected, they had a show like that where the devil, uh, I think it was the Antichrist. No, it was literally like Satan. Was it the devil? He was played by an actor who looked exactly like Obama. Yeah, that was that was a dope move. Um, But yeah, like just to see National Geographic, which was like, you know, in a lot of ways still is very much like nature oriented programming. Um, go toward that kind of stuff. Like, I don't know if you noticed this, but there is a an abundance of animal and specifically pet related content on Disney Plus. Um, there's like an original show that's about a vet, like this old guy who's a vet, and uh, I did not notice that. So a lot of the, I just know because like on the front page on the the app on Samsung TV, it, like there, there was one whole row that was like animal programming and i was like jesus there's a lot of this on here you know it makes sense because kids like animals and adults like animals um but i just noticed that there's a lot of that kind of content so national geographic i would say is going to end up being like we have a few of the like old kind of hardcore type nature documentaries but we also have all this shit about like the kitten doctor <laughs> that kind of stuff yeah, and there's just something about animals that, I mean, it seems like over half of like kids' programming and films are animal-related in some way, like anthropomorphized animals. Yeah. Uh, so it doesn't surprise me that Disney is banking on that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Anyway, that's that's all I got to say about Jeff Goldblum. Uh, that oh, show is that very, sounds that sounds schizophrenic. Yes, it's very. Uh. <laughs> it's like I said. It's like it's literally like a Mad Lib for a TV show. <laughs> you know, it's like yeah. Jeff Goldblum teaches you about sneaker culture. It's like what the fuck is happening on National Geographic? <laughs> on National Geographic, yeah. yeah, yeah. None of those things just like naturally go together. Yeah. Um, that's that's an interesting choice. I applaud that choice. <laughs> uh, okay, so um, what what are you working with over there? Number two here is 1996. I'm going to give you some clues and see if you can guess it. I have a feeling you've seen this film. Uh, so 1996, mm-hmm. not directed by, but produced in part by uh, Tim Burton. Mm-hmm. PG rating. Okay. Um, stop motion animation. From 96? Tim Burton 96. produced. Tim Burton produced, and you can tell. I didn't I didn't pick, you know, I didn't know about it when I was a kid, but have, watching it now, I was like, oh, yeah, Tim Burton produced this movie. Oh, that this bugs me because, like, from all of those clues, I guarantee I've seen this movie, but I cannot think of what it is. Okay, well, here's, here's another good clue. This might give it away. Um, it it starts and ends with live action, real actors. the The bulk of the movie is stop motion, though. In oh the middle. God! Is it James and the Giant Peach? Yes, it is. Ah, hell yeah! <laughs> <laughs> so I freaking loved this movie uh, when I watched it as a kid, and I again, this is another one where I'm like. I sort of tip my hat to my younger self here because this movie freaking rules. Um, And it's way darker than I remembered it being. 
Mm-hmm. And like I said, I didn't know who Tim Burton was when I was 10 years old, but uh, you can really see his impact on the sort of, uh, you know, design of this movie. And it's directed by a gentleman called Henry Selick, mm-hmm. who I'm not sure what else he's done. I'm actually looking at it. He also directed Nightmare Before, Nightmare Christmas, Before Christmas and Coraline, yeah. if you've Coraline. seen that. Makes sense. But it's anyway, this the, the animation is is pretty amazing. Uh, and the music is really good. The opening music number, it's just this kid singing singing a very sad song. Um, it's just I've got I've had it stuck in my head for three days now. And um you kind of get the impression by the end of this movie that this is kind of a rolled doll uh sort of secret biography or autobiography. Yeah. Um, and it's just about, you know, the power of imagination and the necessity, sadly of imagination. Um, and I, I don't really know how to, this, this is just a movie that I, I, I used to be able to quote it you know, like almost all of it word for word. I've watched this so many times when I was a kid and I didn't know why I liked it when I was a kid. And, um, I can't really put my finger on what's so appealing to me about it now. Um, but it does not, I think one of the things is that it does not seem naive at all. Um, it's it just has the sort of trappings of a children's film, but really it's kind of its themes are are pretty universal, and and it's really in a way it's like about coping with trauma, <laughs> uh, which is you know not your normal children's film mm-hmm. fare, uh, so. And, and the music's great, like I said. So I uh, I stand by this one. And uh, so you said you've seen it? Yeah, not not for many, many years. But as a kid, I watched it several times uh, and, and really loved it. And like you said, it has that kind of um, – I, I was, a, I was a, one of those kids that was into like the, the sort of darker tinge stuff. So like James and the Giant Peach and the original Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory and that sort of, and Matilda, which is another role, but role. Oh yeah, one. that's a great one. Um, that that was a that was kind of my wheelhouse as a kid. So I I really liked James and the Giant Peach. Um, I re- I remember like I don't know that that stop motion style and how it like when somebody would get like I don't know why this is in the memory I have, but like I think there's a scene where James is like covered in like peach goop or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. I just remember like they, that kind of stop motion, they make it look as if the person is just like sticky and like gross and like covered and mm-hmm. stuff. And it kind of like feels grimy, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and I just, I, I really, I don't know. It, it's like gritty kind of <laughs> almost well, realistic. It, uh, it's, it's way darker, both like thematically and literally like the, you know, it's just not as bright as a, as a typical kids movie. Yeah. But I think this, this really speaks to what we were saying earlier about the kind of range 
I guess, I guess we said the schizophrenia inherent in the range of, you know, cars and Wally, but that, that the Disney corporation produces something like this, which is, like I said, a, a pretty dark themed movie that only, in my opinion, you know, just kind of looks like a children's movie because it has, because it's stop motion, you know, similar to the way Fantastic Mr. Fox, the another Roald Dahl adaptation is stop motion. Um, but but he writes these these stories that just kind of look or seem like children's stories, but are uh, very, I think, universal and 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 kind of dark. Like I said, this one I think is really James sort of escaping a traumatic situation, um, using his imagination to kind of propel him to a uh, a life where people will just it, – it's not even like the song says. He just kind of wants people to say hello to him in a kind way as opposed to like – you know, he's not asking for too much. He just wants to escape the, the terror of his, of his aunts, Spiker and sponge. Um, but yeah, I, I think I, as a kid was, was like you were saying, I was sort of drawn to the darker stuff too. It's, it's similar to the reasons why I picked and loved uh, shipwrecked is that it's real, uh, or if, you know, it feels real. Um, I've never been a big like cartoon guy. I've never been really big into fantasy either. Like I don't give a shit about Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings or anything like that. Um, so I think maybe on, on some sort of unconscious level, you kind of pick up on these things when you're a kid, you're like, Oh, this movie like means something. I don't know what it is. I don't even know that I'm thinking this, but I can tell that there's something meaningful about this movie um so uh, I, you know maybe that's crazy but uh no, I think, yeah i, I think uh, i'll probably watch this movie again <laughs> the the thing about stories like james and the giant peach or a lot of the doll stuff and a lot of other things too is they're kind of like a, a bridge between like kids books and like sort of little kids stories and like young adult stuff when you start getting into like the real like dark gritty shit of like having a, a young adult novel about like someone whose best friend kills themselves or something like that. Um, like perks of being a wallflower. Yeah. Stuff like that. So it's a good uh, kind of, I think a bridge into that where you start introducing these things, like you said, in a way where you, if you're a kid and you're sort of trying to piece it together, you're like, something's going on here, but I'm not entirely sure what it is yet, but I know that it like, it feels different from other things that I've experienced. Um, and then, so you, my, you sort of build on that. My brother, uh, I was talking to him last night. Um, and I told him that I was watching James and the giant peach. And I know he, uh, you know, we watched it often together when we were kids. And he said, he told me a very interesting story. He said, because we watched the movie, he read the book when he was like eight or nine and he said that was when that book made death, like the concept of death, real to him. He <laughs> said at the end of the book, uh, when Aunt Spiker and Sponge die, Dahl uses the phrase, 
their lifeless bodies or their lifeless corpses or something like that. And he just said there was something about the way, you know, it was described in this book that like he understood the tragedy of it. It was just like, he just like got death all of a sudden because of this fucking roll doll book. Uh, and then, and it, I think it was a, a pretty, a pretty big moment for him. Yeah. And you, you think about, think about the average person who doesn't consider themselves to be a reader and think about the books that they'll tell you are their favorites. It's the things that they read at that age or like, you know, early on in their teens, you know, they read, um, of mice and men and they like remember it forever, that kind of thing. Right. And it's, you know, the, the those messages are going to get to you somehow. Right. So I think it's better for them to maybe get to you through James and the giant peach than, you know, a yeah, shittier and, work and, of art. And when you're eight or nine, as opposed to like, you know, 18 or 19. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I, I really wish I had a memory of like when I got death, <laughs> I don't, I don't know when that happened, but it's pretty cool that, I, that he knows that. Yeah. And has like a page number associated with yeah. it. Uh, I can remember being eight years old and, and being, and understanding that my mom and dad were going to die and just being just terribly sad about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. What a, what a strange time when that, you know, really, really your whole life is kind of this, uh, different levels of your awareness and relationship, uh, to your awareness of death. Yeah. I think, I don't know. Mine was probably like, I went to a lot of funerals when I was a kid because <laughs> people kept dying. Like my uncle died and then my mom's cousin and then eventually my grandma died and like i just kind of got used to that i guess and i just remember like the first time going to a visitation and seeing a dead body and my mom was very much like no you can go see like if you if you want to you can come and, and see and you know going up to the to the casket and looking at it and being like that person is dead they are never coming back <laughs> and like you know, it's a weird mind fuck that takes probably a long time to process, but just like seeing it at that young of an age and, and being like, well, this is what people look like when they're dead. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I remember being at my great grandmother's funeral and my grandma and my mom were, I was just, I, 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 it's a weird detail to remember, but they were, discussing whether or not I should be allowed in to the visitation, be, you know, whether I should be allowed to see the, the body. And I think they, they decided against it, but it was weird. Cause I was just like standing right there listening to them talk. So it almost created this bigger <laughs> mystique about it. So I was yeah. like, I don't want to go if it's something you got to fucking debate about. Yeah. It's like this, this doesn't sound like it's going to end well for me. <laughs> no. Um, no, but yeah, that was a interesting discussion we got off on there. Um, yeah, James and the Giant Peach. Yeah, great choice. Uh, yeah, you dove a little bit deeper than I did. I like my, my stuff is is kind of weird. Anyway, um, my next thing. <laughs> you might have a different opinion when I get to the last one. Okay. Um, okay, so this last one, 
or this last one. It's not my last one. This next one. I have one kind of short one after this. Um, I was looking through the Nat Geo stuff and came across a climate change documentary uh, that was made last year, I think. And it's called Paris to Pittsburgh. And I watched, uh, I watched a lot of, I didn't watch all, all of it. I watched uh, big chunks of it. Um, and it's called Paris to Pittsburgh because what this documentary kind of does is frame the current climate crisis as a Trump problem, as opposed to a much bigger wide ranging problem. Uh, mm. so it's very kind of, you know, American liberal, uh, to do that. Um, and on top of that, it's produced by a company that's owned by Michael Bloomberg, who just announced he was going to run for president for whatever reason. Yeah. Um, because, you know, billionaires are underrepresented. So he decided to hop in. So it, thank God. It, so it's called Paris to Pittsburgh because Trump, when he announced that he was going to be pulling America out of the Paris Agreement, he said that he was elected to represent the people of Pittsburgh, not the people of Paris, which is stupid. And then they frame the uh, mayor of Pittsburgh as some sort of climate warrior because he had a snarky tweet that was like, Pittsburgh will continue to follow the Paris agreement and blah, blah, blah. And, and, you know, trashing this documentary because it's sort of, it's, it's, it's doing all the kind of wrong moves. Like we've talked about before. Um, one thing it does well is it talks about young activists kind of grouping together and doing these mass actions, which is fine, but it's also very into green capitalism uh, where they literally have one of the talking heads, I can't remember who it wasn't like a big name, say that well we can save the environment and grow the, grow the economy at the same time, like that sort of thing. Uh, they spend a lot of time mm-hmm. in Miami, which is always a popular destination, uh, even in like Inconvenient Truth or Inconvenient Sequel, I guess they went to Miami, and they talk about how they're spending like fifty million dollars on water pumps that are just delaying the inevitable and all that sort of stuff. Um. So, yeah, this documentary, like I said, was framing this as it's sort of they're going around their ass to get to their elbow, like framing it as a Trump problem uh, in that because Trump pulled us out of the Paris Accords, that creates all these complications. When in reality, he's just sort of the latest in a very long line of people that have just been straight up, you know, stiff arming, uh, trying to do anything about climate change in favor of maintaining a status quo that is going to lead to the end of humanity if it's not stopped at some point you know i saw a a really interesting debate on hosted by democracy now um it was chris hedges and i cannot remember who the other uh gentleman was debating him and it, it wasn't a you know knockdown drag out debate but Chris Hedges had had written an article called The Problem with Impeachment. And his argument is sort of getting at, I think, what's going on with that documentary you're talking about. He's basically saying the problem with impeachment is not that Donald Trump does not deserve to be impeached. He said the problem is that people place all their hopes, uh, you know, the, the same way conservatives place all their hopes in what they think Trump can do. Liberals are placing all of their hopes in Trump's defeat. And so if it, they think it's this panacea, you know, like, Oh, if we impeach Trump, we win. Everything's better. Um, and he's saying what, the, what it really does is it focuses 
attention on irrelevant things. Uh, and it, like, like you're saying, this documentary is like, we, if you frame it as a Trump problem, you might think that the removal of Trump solves problems, but that is, that is very far from the truth. Yeah. Especially if you like replace him with, <clears throat> which this won't happen. I'm like, I'll eat my own fucking shoe if, if this happens. But if like you replace him with Joe Biden, uh, Joe Biden's policies regarding the environment will be just as, if not more so destructive. Right. Um, yeah. So yeah, that's just kind of a, a red herring and like, yeah, I would love for Trump to get impeached. Sure. Yeah. I think it would be a colossal own. I would love to see him just get dunked on and impeached and be embarrassed and throw a hissy fit. That'd be great. Uh, but it's really, you know, it's kind of, uh, forest for the trees type stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Although it is funny, like, because NPR has been running their like live coverage of the impeachment probe or whatever, um, for like two weeks now. So every time I'm in the car, it's on, or if I'm in the car during the day and lava will be, you know, with me sometimes and they'll talk about, they'll have like some Republican guy that's like these offenses, like, well, first off, they just say they didn't happen, but they'll be like, they want to, it's a witch hunt and they're trying to bring down a democratically elected president. And I just keep saying over and over again, they impeached Clinton for getting a blowjob. <laughs> I just keep saying it like it was a blow. It was the blowjob. Uh, <laughs> it was worth it. <laughs> and so um, I just keep saying that. I'm like, this is like trying to leverage your power. To It's just, I don't know. We don't need to get into it. Uh, <laughs> but it's just kind of one of the many things. It's making me feel like I've lost my damn mind. Yeah, that is the world we live in, my friend. Uh, so, yeah, that was uh, <laughs> Paris to Pittsburgh, like I said. And I'm not really talking about many details because, to be honest, it's just kind of unremarkable. It's sort of like Nat Geo was like, we need a climate change documentary. <laughs> and so they, they set up this kind of framing that, that, as we've talked about, is pretty, I think, harmful or at least unproductive for doing the kinds of things that like, hey, Siri, make us a climate change documentary. <laughs> yeah, yeah, basically. Um, and it's narrated by the, I can't remember her name, but the actress that plays as Miss Maisel, that play, plays as, that plays Miss Maisel in The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel on Amazon, uh, which is a weird kind of conflict of like, she's an Amazon person, but she's in this Disney Plus thing. Um, oh, shit. So, yeah, that's that's about all I got to say about it. What's your, your last one here? Uh, so like I said, I started the old 1953 Peter Pan cartoon, um, but I didn't, I just got really bored. Uh, so really the only, uh, final, the only one I actually like watched all the way through is, and I, I hinted that I might do this one, uh, 1999's Oscar sweeping, uh, smart house, Disney channel, original movie. Yeah. This movie freaking rules. Uh, directed by LeVar Burton Hell of yeah. Reading Rainbow fame and other things, I'm told. Uh, <laughs> Roots. Yeah. The, the miniseries and like Star, Star Trek. Trek and stuff. Yeah. Um, starring the 
uh, multi-talented Ryan Merriman as Ben Cooper. Um, so if you're not familiar, Smart House is a uh, just a house that can sustain itself and does everything on command. It's essentially like an, uh, an Alexa-equipped house, except a little bit more convenient except Ale- the, instead just of like, alexa it's it's uh katie sagel is that how you say her name siegel sagel is that her name who are you talking Catherine about Catherine sagel smart house the 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 Who's embodiment sagel the am i losing my mind oh katie sagel katie sagel yeah, yeah. okay <laughs> i was I like the, we're I've talking about different movies never here. known her name Oh really? Yeah, she's because she's been in you know a ton of shit. Um, you know she was married with children. She was Leela on Futurama. She was in uh that biker show. What the fuck was that called? Sons of Anarchy. I I've never been aware of this person as a person. Are you kidding me? She's like the I'm the star. I, she's like the big star for the that they got for the movie. I mean, she's no Kevin Kilner. Yeah. No. Uh, I, I, okay. No, cool. but the the movie. I mean, obviously, the movie sucks in a sort of production way. Uh, the sets are well. We should mention it's a, it's a Disney Channel original. Yeah, yeah. Disney which, Channel original movie. Will and I are big and fans like, of these. So they just like uh, it's like whoever I guess Lavar Burton just discovered how to use green screen sort of <laughs> um, to where like the walls in the house are supposed to be, you know, interactive and you can have like a, a moving image it makes it look like you're on the beach or something. And, and those scenes are just awful where they're like almost pixelated looking. And, uh, but honestly, this is, I'm not joking when I say thematically the movie is really smart. Uh, and, and it does in fact have a lot in common with, uh, her, the movie, you know, Spike Jones is her, mm-hmm. uh, the most interesting aspect to me is it, in relation to this podcast is the, uh, recurring theme of the imaginative expulsion of mothers, um, which we've seen in you know 20 different movies. And so the Coopers are, uh, I don't, I don't know if it's ever explicitly stated why the mother's not there. If she's, I think she's passed away. And so part of the reason that they, uh, apply for this, um, sweepstakes and win this house is to sort of compensate for the lack of the mother in the house. So the main kid, Ben is like having to do all these chores and sort of take care of the house enters this contest and wins a smart house. Um, and what the movie sort of says is that there's nothing inherently wrong with this technology, but things go wrong when Ben tries to like program the house to like explicitly to be a replacement mother. 
So the sort of consciousness name is Pat, Katie Sagal, and he goes into like the uh, whatever you call it, the headquarters where all the computers are of the house and downloads all these like leave it to beaver, like sitcoms uh, and tells Pat to like learn how to be a mother from TV. And that's when shit hits the fan. And so it seems like the message of the movie is really like once you start asking technology not to augment your life but to in some way substitute for real human relationships, uh, that is when it becomes detrimental to you. Uh, now there's other things you could say about it where like, you know, the absurd luxury of it. Uh, Jensen and I were watching it laughing because there's a part where they order, you know, they're in the kitchen and they tell Pat they want some fruit and this little, uh, sort of fruit tray just comes up out of the cabinet, out of the counter. And I said, this is going to be like snow piercer and there's going to be like children under the floorboards, <laughs> like, like handing the fruit up. Um, but I mean, you could, you could go in a hundred different directions there, but I think overall, I think the theme of this movie is, is weirdly similar to her and uh, a little bit ahead of its time be in that it came out in 1999 when there was no Siri, no Alexa. Uh, and that's essentially the type of technology that, that Pat is. Yes. It rules. Yeah, excellent. It's I, this definitely is, this is maybe the only time I've watched three movies for this podcast and liked all of them. <laughs> and uh, I, I was just looking at the Wikipedia page for it, and apparently Entertainment Weekly named it the the best, the number one Disney Channel original film of all time, which is incorrect. Really? Which is incorrect because the correct answer is Brink. Brink, yeah, uh, definitely about it, you know about rollerblading uh yeah johnny tsunami is also good um i I was disappointed to see that disney plus does not have under wraps oh wow the mummy one yeah of course the mummy one uh this is where we we honed our uh pun skills at an early age (laughs) (laughs) under wraps smart house um but yeah that's uh it's interesting to think about those films because what they did when they released a new one, like every month or something like that for like Sounds a long plausible. time. And, uh, and the fact that every now and then they're going to hit something that is, that is interesting um, or, you know, have some sort of like meaning that you can sort of look at and think about, you know, two decades later, <clears throat> as opposed to a lot of them, which, you know, like Brink, which are just sort of, uh, there and to be like candy i'm just looking at a list of them um they stopped making them in 1990 oh wait no they didn't that's wrong uh what the hell is this okay they were disney channel premiere films and then they switched to disney channel original movies um under wraps was the first one hmm and they're still making they them apparently Fant- phantom of the megaplex you lucky dog, um, Halloween Town. 
my, my brother was uh, sent me a scene, a ridiculous scene from one called The Other Me with the youngest Lawrence brother. Oh, no. uh, one one recurring uh, sort of uh, part in these films, apparently, is they, they, they learned that they needed a dance number integrated into all these movies. And there is just a painful, painful dance scene in Smart House. Uh, where these kids are at a party and uh, jump, jump, the house is jumping uh, by five starts. And uh, they just, they like know the choreograph dance, you know, and uh, I had to look away for a second. (laughs) It like, you know how, when you're at a talent show and like the person who can't sing comes yeah. out and is singing and you just like want to die. Yeah. yeah. I, I feel that I, I have that really strongly, um, yeah. especially things. Like I think that. it's, I think it's called empathy. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah, we don't, mom's got a date with a vampire. I forgot about that one. Anyway, um, there, there are a lot of those and I recommend all of them. Uh, I swear, I think there should be a Criterion release of of, of like '90s DComs because they are so foundational for like our generation. Everybody knows what you're talking about. Everyone's got a hand, like seven movies that they can just name off the top of their heads that they loved or that they are extremely familiar with that are Disney Channel originals. I'm trying to think of like the last one that I, cause you know, eventually you age out of them. And I think maybe like cadet Kelly is maybe like the last one that I watched. It's almost like its own sort of nineties microcosm of the studio system of the like Hollywood studio system where they're just like churning out with this formula, you know, mm-hmm. it's like children's Hollywood studio system. Uh, yeah. And a lot of, uh, you know, actors and actresses that are that are now kind of known uh, started out on a random, you know, Disney Channel original. I was just looking yeah, at you a, look at Hillary Duff. Yeah, and I was looking at a Genius. If you remember that one, um, about the the Genius yeah. kid that goes to college and there's like a hockey thing, but um, Emmy Rossum is in that. Ah, and now she's you know known for Shameless and other stuff. So yeah, yeah. So yeah, pretty cool. Um, the last thing I watched, and I'll just kind of briefly talk about this because it wasn't super <laughs> enlightening or anything, but uh, Hostile Planet, Hostile Planet, uh, which is a, a great title for a nature show if you're just starting from the premise of Earth is hostile and once you dead. <laughs> yeah, um, since you, that's possible. Yeah, do you, do you know who hosts this show? Uh, I don't. Give me a clue. Um, drinking pee. Bear grills. Yep. <laughs> How it, would you like for that to be a clue? That's an easy, <laughs> you know, a giveaway. Yeah, that's an alley oop. Um, so yeah, hosted by Bear Grills, and it's not he's not super involved, but he he's like the voiceover, like Attenborough guy for the show. And just watching the first episode, it's about mountains, and the whole premise of the show is you're looking at animals that are have adapted to live in these quote-unquote inhospitable environments 
So instead of thinking about it as them living in harmony with their environment, it's that they've beat the odds, that kind of thing. And so the opening scene is you're looking at a barnacle geese, which is like a terrible name for an animal. But uh, barnacle geese, they, they build their nests way up high on these like jagged cliffs, like way off the ground. And they have their chicks. And I didn't know this about geese, but apparently geese don't feed their young. They don't bring the food to them, so they have to take their young to the food. And the grass that they eat is like way down at the bottom of this thing next to this river. And the parents can fly, but the chicks cannot. So the adaptation that the barnacle geese has developed is that the mother flies away. The chicks are, you know, imprinted on the mother and are very bonded and will follow her anywhere. So the chicks then jump off of these giant cliffs and fall hundreds of feet, hitting rocks and shit on the way down and slam into the ground. But because their bodies are so light and they have such heavy down and shit like that, uh, that's what they're meant to do. So you they you see these chicks little like geese chicks just falling hundreds of feet and the cameras the cameras following them the whole way and there's like ping-ponging off of crags and then they slam into the ground yeah and then they slam into the ground and then just like sit there for a second and then they hop up and they're and like running around they shake their head like and then like (laughs) then one of them gets like stolen by a bigger bird some kind of like crow looking thing like picks it up and takes it away and then one of them like hits too many rocks and dies before it hits the ground and then the third one makes it (laughs) and they say like of all of the the chicks that are born in a given year like 50 percent of them will live it just reminds me of that scene in apocalypto when they're like deciding to jump off the waterfall and the chief guy's like we will jump (laughs) you know what i'm talking about and like one of them hits his head on the rock Mm -hmm. yeah but except with geese i was watching it and me and Lava are both watching it, and we're just like, what the fuck? And the whole time, I'm saying over and over, I'm like, this can't be the way that they're meant to do it. Like, this can't be their big adaptation. And then I, I looked it up, and sure enough, that's just, that's their solution, is you just fall off this cliff. Yeah. And maybe you way live, go, maybe nature. you don't. You really, you really work that one out yeah. with, a, with a complicated equation. So we need the geese to be down at the bottom what if what if they we just, just have them fucking jump yeah. onto the rocks what if they just yeet themselves off the cliff um <laughs> so but one thing that i did notice that i think is worth mentioning is every nature show like this and that includes this one that includes planet earth or the newer editions of planet earth anything attenborough's done in the past few years they all start from a point of of addressing climate change or warming in some way so for instance after this crazy shit with the geese the next thing you transition to in this episode was a uh, snow leopards in the himalayas and you get bear grills saying like this this leopard is has this thick fur and it's adapted to survive temperatures up to like negative 30 degrees or something like that but today it's 66 <laughs> and there's no snow on these mountains right and so um it's just interesting and attenborough is very much a you know a proponent of of trying to do something for climate change and 
always includes all the stuff in his newer documentaries about the effects that are happening and these things, these changes. And it's just interesting to see that that is kind of documented for the future. Cause you know, you grow up watching these like older nature documentaries. So if anyone mm-hmm. is watching these in the future, they'll be like, Oh, this is, you know, this was kind of the turning point when everyone was like, shit's bad. <laughs> Shit will get worse. Right. And, um, and in a mainstream outlet, yeah, you know, on, on like Disney a, Plus, like a Disney Channel documentary. And I will say, it's interesting to see that the, a lot of stuff, like that documentary that I mentioned, even though it's not great, and this thing, I assume a lot of the other nature shows are talking about climate change pretty openly. Um, and you know, that's, well, that's, it's a minority. It's of, 20, 2019. Yeah, but but still, it's not something that you would. I, I don't think it's something that should be taken for granted. You know. Well, it's like it's like everyone's realized that no one's going to do anything about it. So they're like, okay, we can admit that it's happening now that we've realized that uh, it won't affect anything at all if we talk about it. But it's just uh, and I've heard this from uh, I had a student and I don't know if I mentioned this on here or not, but the student just said to me in class that, you know, everybody believes and no one denies climate change anymore. It's just people disagree on how what to do about it. That was his big point. And because the rest of my class are cowards, they just kind of shook their heads and were like, yeah, that sounds good. Um, but I think you really cannot discount, I think, starting from that point of just admitting that these changes are occurring and noticing them and having those kind of moments of recognition. I don't think it's enough to say, well, yeah, yeah, we all get it. We get it. Moving on. Because that just like plays into this kind of new sort of denialism which is just ignoring it and being like i'll run out the clock until i die and then i don't have to worry about it anymore yeah there's a denial that it's happening and then there's a denial that it matters that it's happening yeah um and and once all the effects come to fruition there will be a denial that the people who died that that matters that's why like yeah there's not it's not americans yeah and that's why the the whole thing with miami of them putting in these like massive water pumps it's like it's not gonna do anything it's just sort of it's literally like trying to bail out the 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 ship with a spoon um and so it's just part of this like thing of we'll do that we'll build these giant water pumps and all the shit and build these walls but we won't do all the things that could actually have some kind of effect we want that silver yeah, bullet solution. We don't want the long term. Well, and we thing. want we want green capitalism. Yeah. Which is to say capitalism. Yeah. The economy has to grow indefinitely forever or dot dot dot. No one will answer yeah. that question. Like what happens if we if we if we do have some kind of degrowth? Um what what's the negative? And and to me, it doesn't even seem like it has to be degrowth. It's that we have to redefine growth uh, and grow in a very different direction. We cannot have growth mean expansion of of dominion or or of especially of the fossil fuel economy. But if you can grow an economy um, in in com- you know, with a completely new ideology that is a a uh, solution or a fix uh, to what we used to call growth. You know, in that in that mm-hmm. paradigm. So it's not it's not necessarily anti-growth. It is anti-growth in the 
current sort of capitalist sense that everyone uses it though. Mm-hmm. I was trying to think of a joke of a joke of like the man with the world's smallest penis is like, we have to redefine growth. <laughs> um, but yeah, just this, the whole idea of, of maintaining capitalism and maintaining, you know, art, this current idea of, of growth and all that sort of shit is just deeply sad to me. And that's the whole, you know, sustainability thing we've talked about. I mean, sustain and maintain are kind of, you know, synonymous. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when people say a lot of times when people talk about sustainability, they're talking about maintaining things as they are. They're, they're talking about green capitalism and what what real environmentalism is about is bringing in a new uh, orientation to humans relationship to nature um, which you know just cannot happen in the venue of capitalism yeah and there's something else that that documentary did which was talk about how the coal jobs are gone and renewable energy is where all the jobs are now and that's where people can you know that's the the growth we should be focusing on solar power and wind power and all that sort of stuff which you know there's there's some truth to that and I think it's worth pursuing, but it's also like you're saying, just it's just shifting all of that same kind of ethos over to another form of production that you can then dominate and exploit and have Mm. people work, you know, 50 million hours a week doing. Yeah. Anyway, so but it seems know. like you you picked way more relevant uh, stuff than I did. I was just like, hey, I like these when I was a kid. I'm going to watch these. You're like, I'm going to watch a climate change documentary. Well, I mean, I watched Jeff Goldblum talk about sneakers, <laughs> um, but no, like the uh, the the climate change documentary was was intentional. But then the the Bear Grylls thing was just because the title was Hostile Planet, and I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> I need to see what that is, and I didn't watch that whole episode. Um, but, I almost watched Tomorrowland with uh, George Clooney, but yeah. I just I couldn't couldn't bring myself to it. I'm sure that that probably would have yielded a more interesting discussion, but uh, I just couldn't do it. I think I want to say Damon Lindelof wrote that, but I don't or directed it or somebody directed it that it was, is like a name. Yeah, mm-hmm. Damon Lindelof produced it and co-wrote the screenplay. What did he do? What do you mean? What, who's Damon Lindelof? Damon Lindelof is uh, the guy that did The Leftovers and did this Watchmen oh, right. adaptation and did Lost yeah, yeah, yeah. and that kind of shit. Yeah. Um, yeah. He has a very distinctive st- Cowboys and Aliens as well. Really? I thought that was... Uh, what's his name? Well, uh, he, he wrote it. John Favreau directed it. Oh yeah, Favreau. And he also wrote the Lindelof wrote the screenplay for Prometheus. Ah, I kind of like that one. It is, yeah. But once you sort of get a feel for his writing, you're like, oh, it makes sense that he wrote Prometheus because it's like confusing and you're not really sure what's going on. Yeah. Um. So yeah, that's uh, I guess that's like all of our watches for this Disney Plus grab bag. Um, yeah. So. Uh, 
the app in and of itself is a, a clear sort of nostalgia grab. Um, mm-hmm. And it's coming out at the worst time possible to distract the masses from uh, political reality. But also the best uh, time if uh, all you're going to do over your holidays is just watch old Disney movies, <laughs> which I'm sure yeah. is why they actually planned it for that this time. Yeah. Um, I'm sure you're right. And to coincide with like, uh, uh, yeah, to coincide with Christmas and like, oh, I need this. Uh, I need this on Blu-ray. I need the Lion King two and a half or whatever those shitty ones are. <laughs> um, yeah. Lion King two and a half. Is, Simba is that a does thing? Dallas. Do they make these like shitty sequels and stuff? Yeah, they made uh, Lion King 2, Simba's Pride. Uh, not making that up. I think that's what's actually called. Yeah. Uh, Lion King 3, Simba does Dallas. Uh, <laughs> Lion King 4, uh, Simba takes Manhattan. I, I don't know. A Spike Lee joint. <laughs> yeah. I, we were talking about this because sometimes you find out things of sequels that you weren't sure about or you didn't know about or you don't see why they exist. Like the skulls. Who knew there were three of the skulls? Yeah. And we were talking because a movie that not that we're doing next week, but that we'll do sometime in the future probably is a Jarhead, uh, which they made three of. They made two sequels to that movie. Like, why? Everyone hated, I mean, a lot of people I know hated the first one. I can't imagine that. I bet what they did is shifted yeah, like it. Who greenlit that one? I would almost guarantee, like, I don't know this, but I'm going to say this with confidence, that the second two, they have taken a Eastwood-esque turn and turned them into a glorification of soldiering. Whereas the first one you, is the opposite. That's the only way they could, like, make those because the first one is extremely thoughtful. It's anti-war and, you know, it's just about the absurdity of the American presence. Yeah. And this uh, isn't, this wasn't a Disney plus films. thing. It, this isn't a Disney plus thing, but last night, uh, lava wanted to, to watch. We've been getting on this kick of watching like silly movies, quote unquote, like random stuff like rom-coms and stuff. And, mm-hmm. uh, we were trying to decide what to watch and I'm flipping through and I see on Amazon a league of their own, which she had mentioned she had never seen and which I have, have seen a bunch of times. So we sat down and watched a league of their own and for one holds up. It's, it's like got its goofy moments, but like Tom Hanks is of course amazing in it. And Gina Davis is amazing. Um, but you know, the scene where they get the telegram uh, like one of the the ladies gets a telegram that her husband's been killed in the war. Uh, it's been a been a long time. Cause it's like you're supposed to think that it's Gina Davis's character's husband, but really it's another girl on the team. And Tom Hanks like gives her the things like I'm so sorry, and she like breaks down crying. And I'm watching that, mm-hmm. and it like I got like kind of choked up because not because of that, but because of what I said to Lava next, which was just like now imagine that but your husband has died for nothing because that's kind of what's been going on since at least Vietnam. Uh, and even in world, world war two is basically for, you know, they call it, you know, the justified war, but that's more or less a myth. Um, yeah. 
so it's just like imagining because World War II, you at least have, and there's a scene where like everybody stands up for the national anthem and they're all singing it. And I was like, it was bad enough after nine 11. I cannot imagine what the patriotism levels were like during World War II. <laughs> um, but yeah. the, this thing, like your, you know, your husband is fighting in Afghanistan or something, you know, 20 years on in a war that seems to have no end, no purpose except for just destruction and ruining people's lives. And then you get, you know, a visit from whoever to tell you that, oh, he's been killed in action. He was a hero. We'll have the funeral and fold the flag and fire the guns and all that. It's just like deeply diseased country we live in. Indeed. I'm glad that we could wrap up Disney Plus (laughs) with, with this, my little diatribe about about that moment uh yeah disney plus i'm sure it will be wildly successful as it is right now oh yeah and born successful like trump (laughs) (laughs) i'm I'm happy with my selections um like i said i will i will definitely watch shipwrecked and james and the giant peach again I don't know if I'll watch Smart House again, but uh, it's it's worth a, a second look if you get a an hour and twenty minutes or whatever it is. Yeah. But don't get it twisted. All of these streaming platforms are there to give you one the illusion that you're in control and you have all of the choices, and two to distract you from anything of substance. That being said, Absolutely. that being said, movies whip ass. <laughs> keep watching them. <laughs> uh, we're gonna keep talking about them. But don't lose sight of that. I think uh, I was like I said, I've been reading Moby Dick. I would say uh, to use his metaphor, your, your mind, human minds are, are a loose fish and, and it's, uh, they're up for grabs. And I think uh, streaming services, especially a corporation like Disney is a is a whaling ship uh, trying to to make you a a fast fish, which is a caught fish. So yeah. keep your mind a loose fish. Yeah. yeah. Don't That's be, don't advice. be the blubber. <laughs> oh, flubber. Is that a Disney yeah, movie? It's probably, it's gotta Shit. be on there, right? It's gotta be. Um, Should have watched that. <laughs> Talk about like science in, in flubber, <laughs> like the philosophy of science in flubber. Um, flubber is human people <laughs> human what people what is not human people what does he say soylent green is people soylent green is people flubber is people um, so yeah that, that pretty much wraps it up uh, next week we're going to again do a film that like maybe we should have done earlier we keep sort of like forgetting these things that could have been kind of kind of foundational, but this movie has like been talked to death. Everyone's seen it. Everybody has an opinion on it. It's been, it's sort of shifted from being a very kind of left-wing work to being something that's been adopted by a lot of like right-wing chuds because of all the stuff regarding the image of masculinity and all that sort of shit in it. Um, and of course what I'm talking about is fight club. Uh, and I forgot what year was it? 99, 99, 1999 Fight Club based on the novel by Chuck Palahniuk. Palahniuk? 
I've always heard Palinuk. Palinuk, uh, directed by David Fincher. Um, all that good stuff. Brad Pitt, Ed Norton, getting shirtless and beating on each other, sweating on each other. Tasting I am looking blood. forward to it. Uh, so we're going to be talking about that. And hopefully what I'm going to try to do since, again, people have probably heard like every opinion about this movie is try to like reframe it as being this kind of considering the time, a kind of radical, radically anti-consumerist kind of left-leaning pro working class visual text, as opposed to just being about the, the joy of being shirtless with other men, (laughs) that kind of thing. Um, Sure. Yeah. So, and and just remembering that it's, it's pre nine 11, but it's right on the cusp of the, all of that, those changes. Uh, mm-hmm. which is a hint toward things we might do in the future. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Fight Club next week. That's what we'll be doing. 